If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Philosophy for Our Times is brought to you in partnership with the New College of the Humanities, a university-level college offering undergraduate and postgraduate degrees in the heart of London. NCH pride themselves on offering unprecedented access to a world-class academic faculty. Philosophy students at the college are taught by some of the foremost scholars in the field, and one-to-one tutorials create a personalised teaching experience. Choose your major and minor for a unique combined honours degree and study the NCH Diploma to widen your appreciation of the world in ways you'd never thought of before. Go to nchlondon.ac.uk for more information. Think better. Think NCH. I was a family and criminal barrister for 10 years. I predominantly did defence work and I predominantly represented people in the family courts in the public law sphere. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast which brings you the world's leading thinkers to debate today's biggest ideas. What I learned was that justice uh, is a complex and layered concept. Whether you get justice at the end of it Uh, is not something that I necessarily have subscribed to, nor is it necessarily about finding out the truth. We're often used to hearing about the law being spoken about in purely rational and theoretical terms. So this week's mode of reflection will come as a refreshing take for you on what the legal system really is. This week, we bring you a personal and philosophical reflection into what concepts such as truth, innocence and justice mean to those inside the law courts. As ever, we'd love to hear what you thought of this episode, so please do subscribe today and get in touch with us through IAI TV. Back now to barrister in criminal and family law and author of In Your Defence, Stories of Life and Law, Sarah Langford. I thought what I would do is do top and tail with a reading, which will be relevant to what I'm talking about in the middle of the sandwich, uh, and will give you an idea of my own experience within the court system uh, and that of my clients, which is what I write about in my book, and then I can talk about the subject in between. Uh, To give you some context, this reading is about a person I represented over the course of eight years on and off who was a really bad burglar and this is a part uh, uh, what 
the moment after I discovered, maybe after we first met, after our first trial together. After our first victory, I went on to represent Dominic many times. His crimes were almost always theft, with occasional light violence and plenty of public disorder. He would target cash, alcohol and cigarettes, which he knew he could sell on fast, but which never made him sufficient money to survive on for long. He was not, I soon discovered, a good thief. His crimes were opportunist, usually unplanned, and often committed when he was too drunk to think about the trail of evidence he was leaving behind him like breadcrumbs. Unfailingly, I would read the evidence against him and find myself laughing out loud. Once, climbing backwards out of an office window, he became stuck. Spotted by a passerby, he had to wait, suspended in midair, for the police to come and arrest him. Another time, he tore his bag on the way out of a window so that the bottles of alcohol he'd just stolen fell and smashed, calling over curious witnesses to investigate the noise. In another drunken break-in, he left behind a tool covered in his fingerprints, smears of blood from a cut to his hand. But my favourite piece of evidence was a letter, carefully placed on his pillow as though it were a love note, for the police to find when they raided his flat. Fuck you, pigs. Can't catch me. Ha 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 ha. Dom. Kiss, kiss, kiss. <laughs> they did, of course. I was involved in only one other trial in which Dom refused to plead guilty. It involved a break-in at a local college and the evidence against him was slim, but the prosecution decided to charge him anyway. They knew that his previous convictions for burglary showed a propensity to commit the crime, and that meant they were admissible by law into the trial. During his evidence, I asked Dom about his past, getting there before the prosecution's cross-examination, hoping to deaden their punch. Dominic, I said, as he stood in the witness box, you are 21 years old, and you have 23 previous convictions for burglary. He clasped his hands in front of him, dropping his head. All we could see were his, was his halo of curly dark hair. Yes, miss, I have. And how did, you plead how did you plead to those burglaries, Dominic? He looked back up and straight at me. Guilty, miss, to every single one of them. So, Dominic, why aren't you pleading guilty to this one? Because, he said, turning to stare beseechingly at the magistrates, all of whom gazed back, I didn't do this one. As the not guilty verdict was read out and Dominic skipped away from court with the friends who had been waiting for him, I found myself wondering whether I, like the magistrates, had just been duped, and if so, whether I was glad he had got away with it. The more I represented him, the more I began to understand something else. Dominic might be a terrible criminal, but he was not stupid. He would talk me through the evidence, what charges he thought we might persuade the prosecution to drop, which ones he should plead guilty to. He had a working knowledge of all the sentencing guidelines, to which all courts are bound, and which predetermined his fate with a flowchart to his future. Don would tell me which level of the guideline for his offence did or did not apply to him, he would point to details of the case, which meant that the judge could go below the sentence starting point. But his special skill was writing beautiful, heartfelt letters to the court, full of pleas and promises of reformation, and his commitment to a life beyond crime, where, having never had one, he would hold down a job. 
He wrote with great charm. His spelling and syntax were better than most of the police statements that had imprisoned him, and more than one judge remarked how articulate they were, even if they rarely worked. He was canny enough to check which judge was sentencing him. All right, he once said, crunching his handwritten letter into a ball. He's had one of these before. <laughs> Dom had so many court hearings that sometimes barely a week went by without my seeing him. I began to believe that he did not care about getting caught, nor about the consequences. Sometimes, on the way home from court, I would gaze out of the train window as dusk fell and lose myself in a vain fantasy where I took him from his life. I would help him find him somewhere to live, get him a job, show him ways to focus his energy and rebellion and character. I would indulge myself in this daydreaming, aware that it could surely never work and that I would surely never try. So to give you a, a bit of context, uh, I'm currently on maternity leave. Uh, that's why I was able to write a book, but I was a family and criminal barrister for 10 years. I predominantly did defense work and I predominantly represented children, uh, represented uh, people in the family courts in the public law sphere. And I thought it would be important to write a book about the emotional side of the law. There was a big uh, rush of narrative nonfiction in the medical sphere, Henry Marsh and so on, who showed us a different side of a subject that was very dry and inaccessible and technical. And every book that I could find about the law was basically uh, a very funny, but other version of Rumpel, which shone the light firmly at the front of the court to the judges and the barristers and the hijinks, and less at the back of court, which gave a detailed and sensitive explanation into the complicated people that I would see on a daily basis. Um, I also wanted to expose, uh, as far as I was able, some of the flaws in our system, uh, and to explain why the law is important, even if you will never step into a courtroom. Because uh, it's my firm belief that it is an umbrella under which we all exist, but we take it entirely for granted, not deliberately, it just is there. We assume it will be there whenever we need it, whether it's to take our employer to court or whether it's to bring the government to court. We think we will have access uh, to it. And it's only when we find ourselves in a position where we realize that we don't, that we start to wonder what's gone wrong. And why this is not going to be a kind of ranty polemic, although there is a little bit of that right at the end of the book, uh, that's what I wanted to write about. And in terms of this um, talk, what did I learn over the 10 years that I did it? And can it ever keep its promise of justice? Well, what I learned was that justice uh, is a complex and layered concept and that in a way is what we tried to do is to fit the hugely varied shades of gray that we would find in both the people and the situations that we were dealing with into this black and white law and hu law is human made human enforced so of course that was a that was a task whether you get justice at the end of it 
uh, is not something that I necessarily have subscribed to, nor is it necessarily about finding out the truth. Because what I did discover was that there were various truths. Uh, one of the chapters I write about is uh, finding myself lulled into a, a sense of complacency, I suppose, after a few years of practice where you are presented with a case that you're absolutely sure that you know the outcome of. And you, well, I sank my head into my hands and thought, this is going to be so embarrassing. The trial was uh, a foregone conclusion, I thought. And it was an important case that I've written about because uh, it pulled me up on all of my judgments, preconceptions, and it reminded me that you never know until you have heard someone's story and you have sat opposite them and, and gone through it with them, you never know. Uh, and this case was one that the prosecution had barely prepared. They were so confident in winning it, and it fell apart. Uh, and it wasn't the only one I did, but it was notable in my own story because it reminded me not to prejudge when it's so easy to do that. And we, will, we all do that. Of course, we all we have to make judgments about people. That's how we navigate life. Um, but if there's one thing I wanted to say through this book was to think about the possibility of another story lying behind the Daily Mail headline or whatever it might be. Uh, is it about fairness? Yeah, that's exactly what it's about. Very often, I would represent people sometimes particularly in the civil courts where the outcome was of course something they were focused on but the process was as important and that to an extent happened in the criminal case I had clients who when they were found guilty and I went down to see them in the cells afterwards would be entirely accepting of it if they had thought if they thought that the trial had given them a fair run and that they had, due process had been followed. And I began to learn how important this idea of due process is. And uh, the idea of fairness, of course, is elemental to due process. There has to be equality on both sides of a case in terms of equality of arms. Uh, there has to be a tribunal who has the capability and power to, to sit in judgment and who is respected by those who appear before it. And that is where we are falling down in our own legal process at the moment. It's been a slow creep. There are various uh, issues within the um, legal sphere in terms of funding cuts but I think only now are we realizing on a day-to-day -day basis within the, uh, the battle of the courts how profound it is when you take away the equality of arms and when you take away the uh, impartial and fair tribunal. And just to give you an example, if I can, on both sides, because I did criminal and family. The criminal courts get a bit more airtime because they are a bit more glamorous, we think, until you realize that I mostly went to Slough and Swindon and not the Old Bailey. Uh, not all the time. But you, um, the, the, there are various elements to the, the 
the criminal courts, which are relatively high profile in terms of their, their cuts, up to 40% in the last 10 years. We know about all the disclosure problems which have been faced by uh, overstretched and poorly cut police force, which have come into perfect, the perfect storm of having a whole new set of types of offenses, historical sex offenses, proliferation of pornography and indecent images offenses, which when I first started doing, if you were arrested for indecent images, was a couple of hundred. And now it's tens of thousands of images because there are just, it's easier to access. What people know less about, I think, uh, you will tell me if not, is the family court system. Um, I should say that I think that's probably because the family court system is still a private court. Anyone, all of you, can go into your local criminal court and see what's happening for most of the trials in there. You can't in a family court. Uh, it made it quite hard to write about, and what I did was do a composite. So all of the cases that are in the book happened. They didn't happen to the same person. I've taken elements and blended it together, but I was able to do that because so often the issues is, are the same, even when the people are different. Uh, one in three cases in a family court now has no lawyers involved at all which you can imagine how much fun that is for the judge that has to decide it. Uh, I often appeared against litigants in person, uh, which was, as you can imagine, really hard. Uh, it was hard for a whole host of reasons, and I had huge sympathy for lots of them, even when I was representing their ex-partner. Uh, one of the worst uh, examples of where the things I've talked about, fairness and equality of arms, is failed in that situation is when uh, the my client, who may be represented, has made various allegations against her ex, who then is able to cross-examine her, and it was usually that way around, about those allegations. And I've seen that in allegations of rape, and I've seen it in allegations of really serious violence. And uh, it is extraordinary that that is allowed to happen. It's not allowed in the criminal courts. It's, it's prohibited by law for someone who's made an accusation of sexual assault to be cross-examined by the person they say perpetrated it. But this is going on all, all the time. And I wanted, therefore, to write a book which wove this into a story to try and uh, raise awareness to it, but also to make people think about how the law supports us all, even when we don't physically touch it and it and it does and I think that's why I wanted to read the final part this is the ranty bit sorry it's not too long this is after my the final case I did when I was pretty heavily pregnant uh, and reflecting on all the things I'd learned over 10 years and how I felt about the law. I turned and walked across the bridge, over the road and up through the narrow market street lined with stalls and cafes until I came to the road where the Crown Court stands. Part of me wanted to slip in and watch a trial, but I felt foolish doing so in front of those who might wonder why I had turned up as a tourist. Instead, I thought of those cases and clients that had changed me. 
I became aware of a familiar sensation. It was the same feeling I have whenever I tug my black gown over my shoulders and settle my wig into place for my head. It is a quiet but solid respect for the law, its history, its purpose, its ambition, and its place. We pride ourselves on our legal system. We know we should be proud because foreigners choose to come here to use it. They do so knowing that the judge before whom they appear cannot be bribed or threatened or bullied into doing anything other than applying the law. That sense of integrity extends throughout the system, not just for those who use it, but among those who work within it and try to preserve its dignity and efficacy. As a result, our courts dispense justice with a degree of equity that means they are still considered among the fairest in the world. We are in danger of taking this inheritance for granted. Great damage has already been done. Our legal system is regularly threatened and often wholly unsupported by those whose duty it is to protect it. Changes in its function and its funding have gouged chunks out of the high legal principles that we presumed were inviolable. Access to justice for all, no matter what your background or your bank balance. A high quality judiciary, both to enforce the law and to make it. A fair, swift and equal hearing. We may believe that we are a long way away from the corrupted legal systems that encourage foreigners to litigate in our courts rather than their own, where only money or political favour can ensure your freedom or a favourable ju judgment. We would be mistaken. While the legal system is in need of reform, the cumulative effect of poorly targeted funding cuts over several decades has seriously compromised the criminal law and threatened the principle of good and fair justice both for victims and defendants. Access to the family and civil courts for those without means is now skeletal. Falling pay and overwhelming workloads have meant that finding new judges is as difficult as keeping the ones we already have, something made no easier by public attacks from those who should know better. The law, and by extension the country, is threatened by an insidious form of corruption that is just as damaging as the more obvious kind, the gradual but irreparable erosion in trust in our legal system and its ability to dispense justice in a situation against, is, forgive me, its ability to dispense justice is a situation against which we must all protect ourselves. For should we slip further into it, all of us will bear the cost. Lawyers often say the law is important even to those who are, un are unlikely to set foot in a courtroom because, as the truism goes, none of us know what life might throw at us. Any of us may become the unexpected victim of a terrible crime or a false accusation. But the law's reach is far wider than this. The decisions made in courts across our country touch our daily lives somehow no matter how far removed we think we might be or whether we notice. Our ability to buy and sell and to invest are made possible by a legal system that is trusted to enforce a contract fairly. From the cost of our household insurance to the ability to hold our government and its institutions to account, 
good and bad decisions by the law reach us all in the end. The law seems removed because the archaic rituals and language of the court belie the fact that our system is a living thing. It deals with the most contemporary of problems, reflecting society back at itself. This is why everyone should have an interest in protecting what we know our justice system can do at its best. The law is human justice, designed and enforced. It will always, therefore, be imperfect. It makes mistakes. It is slow, sometimes chaotic, sometimes illogical. It cracks and at times crumbles. But it remains a pillar upon which our country is founded. Were it to break, the stability of our nation would break too, and we would all be the poorer for it. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. I'm Anna from the Institute of Art and Ideas, and as ever, we'd love to hear what you thought, so please do get in touch at IITV. Before you go, I'd also like to remind you that tickets for our music and philosophy festival are now on sale. Go to howthelightgetsin.org to see the full lineup of the world's largest music and philosophy festival and secure your tickets today. If you like what you heard today, then please do subscribe and make sure you tune in next week for another episode of Philosophy for Our Times.